Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Who's excited to be in church today? Come on. Okay, 9 a.m. service. Acting like the, uh, you slept in or something. Okay, I like this. The coffee is caffeinated today. Hello. Um, if you're brand new, I'm Tyler, the pastor here. We're in a series titled This Our God. Uh, I'm, I'm going to skip a few books today. We're supposed to be in Ruth, but I'm going to go to 1 Kings. Is that okay? Cool. Good talk. Let's get into it. I got a lot of stuff today. Title message is The Cost of Revival. Turn to your neighbor and say, The Cost of Revival. Oh, come on now. Uh, now, this is a message that I think people in California can relate to and understand more than any other state. Maybe New York would be the other one. Now, here's what I mean by that. We all understand what the cost of greatness is. We live in one of the greatest places on all the planet, and we pay the price for it. Can we agree with that? I just paid my property taxes. I paid the price for it, all right? They remind me how much it costs to live in California. It's interesting. When we were looking for a house, people uh, would pay uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars more just to get their kid into a, a certain school district. We don't, we don't have kids at the moment, so I didn't really care about the school districts. So I was trying to find a deal. Oh, we're schools? I'll take the house. My kid can get homeschooled, whatever. Um, but it's amazing to me what we're willing to pay for things that we value. It's amazing. <laughs> Amen. Come on now. Not him. Um, it's, it is, it's one of these things that you, you see people, they're willing to work extra hours, willing to uh, take stuff in their savings and say, I'm going to pay this much money for this house because I want my kid in this school district. And so we're willing to pay those things for material things. Have you ever been to somebody's house before and you just wanted it? Anybody? You walk in and you see their bathroom, you're like, oh my gosh, like the bathroom's as big as my bedroom, you know? Um, or their closet, walk-in closet as big as the guest room. But you ever seen a house you've ever wanted before? Can we agree with that? Yeah. And the reason why you want it, and then you ask, like, how did you get it? There was a cost. There was a career path. There was, there was hours labored. Well, the thought I have today is, just like there's a cost to have a house that you dreamt of, just like there's a cost to have the life that you dreamt of, there is a cost to have the soul that you dreamt of. Yeah. There is a cost to have the relationships that you dreamt of, to have the church that you dreamt of. There's a cost to be paid. And so Jesus paid the ultimate cost on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. But I think that you have to understand that there is a stewardship uh, ownership that all of us have to have. And so I want to unpack literally the, the word revival before we even go to the 1 Kings 18, because I think it's kind of an interesting word. Uh, now, the word revival literally means just to return. So what does it look like for a church to be revived? Uh, uh, in Revelation, it shows us very clearly what, what, what it looks like. Uh, Jesus comes to all these churches, and they are what I would say is on their, like, you know, deathbed, you know, and uh, the um, little EKG thing or whatever reads the heart, it's going like this. Boop! I mean, they're barely done. They're, they're holding on by a thread. And Jesus comes to the church of Ephesus and simply says, hey, you have forgotten your first love, and I need you to return to your first love. If not, boop, it's going to stay there forever. You ever been to a church that feels like that, like, boop, like bring the paddles out, like they're just, right, that's not our church. I mean, today, we are, were we worshiping today? Come on, this ain't a church where we just stand and look at God. We stand and worship God. Come on now. And so he says, the only way that you're going to revive is you need to return to your first love. Return to what you used to be, your former glory. Oh, there's something about a church that, that is revived and returning to why they're alive, and it's to worship God and to love people. And so that, that's what a church looks like. What does it look like for a city to be revived? A city gets better and brighter when a church gets uh, uh, revived. When, when a church gets revived, it's not us versus the world. It's us for the world. It's not us, ugh, the world. It's, oh, our heart breaks for the world that's lost. When we see them pushing agendas that just make us want to puke, we don't point and hate them. We say, man, how do we love them and get them to the king? 
You're not gonna change the world by pointing at it and being versed. it. You're gonna change the world by being for it and loving it. So the city gets better and brighter when we get revived. And last but not least, what does revival look like for you personally? What does it look like for you personally? Let me, let me double down on this illustration. That's my new uh, trademark, I guess, double down. I don't know when it happened, but it happened. Um, but uh, picture a 1950s car uh, today beat up and old and then given it to a uh, restoration master, somebody who knows how to restore it to like its perfect glory. And so you give this car to a, um, you know, uh, this car shop and it stays there for a few months and you show up and it has the original wheels on it, the white wall wheels. Remember those things back in the day? It's paint is perfect and sparkling. The inside and the interior is perfect and it's been returned to what it used to be and it's vibrant. You would say, whoa, that car's been revived. A house that's been beat up and broken and you give it to somebody who knows how to remodel and make everything perfect. You walk in, you see new floors, new everything. You go, whoa, this house has been revived. What about a marriage? What about a marriage that has been beat down and broken by the world? And you give it to God, and you come back a few months later and go, whoa, what happened? This thing's been revived. What happens to a person who's been beat down and broken by the world, and you give your life to the Lord, and in months and in years, your life is revived, and people go, whoa, what happened to your life? Just like a house that people want, may you have a life people want. May they say, man, how did you get this house? It came through prayer. It came through discipline. It came through faithfully serving. It came through living the way God called me to live. There was a cost, and I wanted to pay it. And because of that, I got revived. Will you bow your heads? I'm going to pray. God, I thank you for what you're doing at Mission Church. Thank you for the gift that your gospel is. Thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, the cost of revival. May we gladly pay the price. Oh, Lord, we love you, we love you. And God, we thank you that you paid the ultimate price on the cross. God, we were dead in our trespasses, and you decided to revive us. The devil thought he had us, but you said we were yours. Woo, we love you, Jesus. Would my words fall to the floor and your words soar? And everybody said? All right, we're going to pick up in 1 Kings 18. Before we get into 1 Kings 18, i got to make sure you know what's going on. Uh, 1 Kings uh, 1, uh, David is dying, passes off to Solomon. Solomon uh, has some great moments as a king, passes off to his son. His son is a terrible leader, uh, such a bad leader that Israel in, uh, gets divided into two kings, Israel and Judah. And then 1 Kings 17, the, the king of Israel is a guy named King Ahab now. King Ahab is ruling Israel, and he is a terrible king. He made some bad and poor decisions. Uh, he made some, uh, some financial decisions. He ended up marrying uh, a girl named Jezebel, the worst of the worst. He married bad. Can I just tell you that relationships are going to be the greatest propellers in your life or the greatest inhibitors of your life? Yeah. Make sure who you put around in your life. So, so he picks Jezebel. Why does he pick Jezebel? She's a Phoenician princess. She, um, her, her, her country, her, her territory is in charge of a sea harbor and a port. So he is making a financial move. If he marries Jezebel, he'll have a financial gain. So for Ahab, it was a great money move, but a bad soul move. Mm, some of you making money moves, you got to start making soul moves, okay? And so he makes a money move, but it's bad for his soul because he wants to be able to import and export in the Phoenician ports. Well, Jezebel comes over to Israel, and she wants to export and import something else. She wants to export the God of Israel and import the God of Baal. And so throughout this time, Israel becomes diluted. It becomes a nation where they're worshiping God on Sunday and sacrificing to Baal on Monday. It's this gross culture of where they're one foot in and one foot out. And out of the blue, there's this guy named Elijah that just shows up on the scene. First Kings 17, we don't know where he came from, he just shows up. And he shows up with King Ahab and says, hey, you have strayed away from God, it's not gonna rain anymore until I say it will. Peace, deuces, and just leaves. And Ahab's like, who was that guy? And they're like, I don't know. But he said it ain't gonna rain. What's the big deal with rain? Let me read you a verse that says in the Bible about rain. It says this about rain. 
So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. Stop. Rain in the Old Testament represented blessing and it represented life or death. And so God says, I'm going to remove my blessing. I cannot give you abundant life because you're not living for me. God is committed to giving you the promise, but he's also committed not to blessing in your disobedience. And so uh, Elijah comes in, hey, not going to rain, I'm out. Now, the only thing we know about Elijah, he's one of the greatest prophets in the Bible, second most uh, miracles in all the Old Testament right behind Elisha, and then the most miracles in all the Bible is Jesus. So he's in the top three miracles. So Elijah's amazing, but the only things we know about Elijah is he was super hairy and he wore a leather belt. That's it. <laughs> The same description that you would give for Chewbacca from Star Wars. Put the picture up. Maybe, just maybe, Elijah looked like that. You ain't gonna get no rain. So, so Elijah, all we know is Harry and he wore a leather belt. Take that off, I gotta preach. Um, so three years pass. First Kings 18 comes on the scene. And now here we are. God tells Elijah, I want you to now go preach. And for the last three years, Elijah has been chilling. He's being fed by ravens. He wrote a weird life. He did live a weird life. I will say, though, that DoorDash and Uber Eats is an Old Testament idea. Okay, it was God's idea. You stay here, Elijah. I'll deliver. Okay, I'll deliver. All right? So, so Elijah, three years later, God says, I'm going to bring rain again. But I need to make sure the reason the people know why rain is coming is not because of their disobedience, not because they're sacrificing to Baal, because Baal was known as the storm god at this time. And what's interesting is, is we can confuse our success with the wrong gods. We can confuse our success with our own work ethic, with our own amazingness, or whatever we've decided with our superstitions. And God goes, I don't want there to be any confusion on my blessings in their life. I want there to be a contest. So I want you to gather the, the prophets of Baal, the people of Israel, and I want you to bring them to Mount Carmel. Why Mount Carmel? It is where they thought Baal actually manifested. So it was, you could say, an away game for the Christians. Elijah said, I'm going to beat them on their home turf even. You can have the home crowd. You can have the home game. My God's still going to win. Isn't that like the world right now? The world is not a home game. The world is not going to be cheering you on, encouraging you, and protecting you. We live in the away game type of atmosphere. Can we agree with that? But God will prove to you he can win in the away games also. And so, so we pick up in 1 Kings 18, and this is what's happening. Are you tracking with me? All right, it's going to be a great story. Here we go. Um, oh, last, very important. Uh, so 1 Kings 18, three years has passed. Water is now very rare. They have wells, they have cisterns, so it's at a critical level. And I find it interesting when I was reading that water was at a critical level. And this is when God now was going to call him back. And if I could just tell you something real quick, it's interesting why people come to church out of the blue. They were at a critical level. They were deciding, can, do we water the horses or we water the cattle? One will have to die and one will have to flourish. And what happens a lot, what I hear after the last 19 years of, of, of preaching and pastoring, is a lot of the reason why people come back to church is because their marriage is at a critical level. Because their life is at a critical level. Because their family is at a critical level. Can I tell you real quick that your problems will serve a purpose? That God will use them to bring them back to you. And what I, I hate about the world, and what I hate about this picture, but there's, there's, there's good news attached to it, is that the world will have you pick. Your marriage will have to die, but your kids can flourish. Your career can flourish, but then your marriage has to die. And the reality is, is that that was the choice that the Israelites had to choose under the God of Baal. But in the, under the God of the gospel, the God of the word, you can have your marriage flourish, you can have your kids flourish, and you can have your career flourish. Yeah. And so Elijah says, hey, I'm going to give them another option. 
Not if their cattle can live or the horse can live or they can live. They can all live and they can all have abundance. Do you want that kind of God? Yes. Come on. So now I can get back to the text. Sorry. There's a lot of context. I love context. It's my number two, my strength finder. Okay. Um, <laughs> real talk. First uh, Kings 18, uh, verse 16. So we're going to pick up here. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and Ahab told him, uh, uh, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you trouble of Israel? So Ahab told Obadiah, hey, go tell your master that I'm going to have a, uh, basically a, um, a God off. I don't even know what you'd call this, okay? Um, but we're going to have uh, two sacrifices, and whatever God answers the sacrifice with fire, that's the real God. We're going to have a contest. And so Obadiah goes and gets Ahab. And so when Ahab shows up, he goes, what do you want, you troublemaker? You, you, you troubler of Israel? Isn't it interesting that when the world has problems, they blame everything except their own actions? Yeah. They'll blame the church, they'll blame the other political party, but they'll never own their own life. They'll never say, my spirit, my responsibility. Maybe there's something that we're doing that maybe we should actually look at our own life, say maybe we should change something. And so, so he blames uh, Elijah, and Elijah says this, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed uh, the Baals. Generally, the Baals. Baals was not, Baal was not like the God of Zeus. Baals... Uh, the God of Baal, the, the Baal God, if you put it that way, was a generic term for a bunch of gods. So this one was the Baal of storms, but there was also the Baal of sex, the Baal of beauty. It was just a generic term for a bunch of gods in the Israelite in, uh, culture, and especially the Phoenician culture that worshiped the, the, the God of Baal. So I'm going to touch on that in just a second. Now, some of the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So I have sent the word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver? Everybody say waver. waver. One of the biggest words in all this text, and we're going we're to sit on it for a second. Between two opinions, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Stop. The cost of not choosing revival is the first thing I got to touch on real quick. So you have Elijah, and he says, how long will you waver, Israel? How long will you choose to live for God on Sunday, but then sacrifice to Baal on Monday? How long will you live this duplicitous life? How long will you live it? Now, when I read the Bible, I just got to be honest with you real quick. I can't help but not be concerned for the American church. I can't help but be concerned for the American Christian. Because when you read the Bible and you see the things that God's correcting a lot, it, let me put it this way. They are living not for God completely, but they're not totally not living for God. They're not living for Baal completely, but they're not completely living for Baal. They're in this in-between place, and that's the most dangerous place a person could ever live. And he's saying, hey, this is the most dangerous place for you to live, a life of wavering. I love God, but I love Baal. I love, I, love the, I love heaven, but I love the world. And he says, that's more dangerous than picking one or the other. Pick one and then live with it. Yeah. And so here's why he's saying, and if I can just put this way, you never want to be a pastor that shames people into coming to church. If you don't come to church, you're going to live a terrible life. Have a great day. You don't want to do that. <laughs> if you don't read your Bible and pray, your marriage is going to suck. Have a good day. You don't want to do that. But as a pastor, I need to let you know the cost of not choosing revival. I don't want to shame you into revival. I don't want to shame you into coming to church. But you need to know the cost of it. Here's the cost of you wavering. Because the, the Hebrew word of wavering is actually to be lame. It's to live a lame life. It's to lay down your life and not move forward in things. So if you decide to live for God on Sunday, but then have your own Baal God on Monday or Tuesday that you live for instead, and you give your life to, the reality is that you'll have a lame life and you'll lay there. Nothing worse than lame Christianity. Nothing worse than a lame church. And the reality is, is that a lot of people live in this lame spot and are confused why they haven't moved forward. Here's the cost of not putting God at first in your life. Famine. That's the cost. When you decide to waver 
in your life and say, I'm going to love God on Sunday, but I'm going to live for other things Monday through Saturday, you're going to have famine in your marriage. When you decide to live for God on Sunday, but still live for the world Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then give God a little bit an hour on Sunday, you're going to have famine in your life. Famine for three years. You're going to have famine of joy, famine of peace, famine of great relationships, famine of purpose. We're seeing this in the land right now in the Bay Area, that people are, everything that is bad is going up right now. Mental health, relationships destroying, you name it, it's going up in a bad way. And the reality is, is because people are living a lame life, aka they are wavering in between both. And so there is this, to be honest, the first, I wasn't going to use this word because it's just an Old Testament kind of strong word, but the first way to revival is there's a rebuke that happens. And it's just saying, hey, stop it. Live for God. Really live for God. Like really worship him. Really prioritize him. Really take him seriously and his word and obey him. Or go live for the world completely and see how that works out for you. Let's have a contest. Let's see who plants himself in the house of God, lives for God, worships God, prays to God, and see how their life is in six months. And let's see somebody live for the world, worship the world, do things worldly ways, and let's see where the fruit is in six months. That's what he's saying. People are clamming, clamming, uh, clapping for rebukes. You're a weird church, Mr. Yeah, rebuke. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm down with it. I'm down. Let's keep going. So there is a cost to not choosing revival, and that's what Elijah shows us in the very beginning, even before every, all the things we see here. Let's keep going. Okay, okay. I promise to be done uh, at a good time. I'm working on doing 40-minute messages, so this is my own personal uh, competition with myself as I preach. Um, hoping that's a Holy Spirit thing, not a Tyler thing. Okay, we're up. Um, but the people said nothing. So he said, isn't that interesting? He calls them to live differently, but they say nothing. That happens a lot on Sundays. You get called every week to live differently, and you say nothing, you do nothing. I'm believing that you're in it, something different's going to change. Not, tomorrow will not be a nothing day again. Tomorrow will be a different day because God's reviving you right now. You're feeling a tug on your heart. Here we go. Then Elijah said to him, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. There was more uh, prophets. There's over 7,000. Elijah uh, suffered from what I call Elijah syndrome. He thought he was the only one doing great things for God. Do you ever feel that way? I'm the only one who works in my family. I'm the only one who cleans the house. I'm the only one who loves. I'm the only one that serves. That's Elijah. He did that a lot. God would have to correct him later on in the Bible, okay? So if you're one of them, you're like Elijah, kind of. Okay. Um, so I'm going to get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut them into pieces and put on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire uh, to it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God, then all the people say, uh, what you say is good. So, so they create this contest. Let's see, let, let, let's have a sacrifice off. Let's see who the real God is. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it uh, first, since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. Just to give you a heads up, never ever deem what there's more of as the right decision. In culture right now, there's more people saying not to live for God than to live for God. There's more prophets of Baal than there were priests for God. Do not, do not allow culture to dictate just because there's more people. So the name of God, but do not uh, light the fire. So they took the bowl, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or traveling. 
Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as they were accustomed to until their blood flowed. Stop. Aren't you glad that we don't have a God that makes us cut ourselves for our blood, but also but already gave his blood? Are we thankful for that? I'm so thankful God doesn't require my blood. He gave me his blood. Aren't you glad that our God doesn't require performance? They had to dance and perform before their God to try to get something. Our God doesn't require performance. He just requires an obedience. There's something to be said about the God we worship. Now, you got to understand something real quick. Uh, like I said before, that Baal was not just uh, like Zeus uh, that we hear of, like other pagan gods. Uh, Baal was a generic term for any god that was happening in the pagan culture. These primitive people were more real than you and I were. And what I mean by they were more real is when they really loved something, they made it a god. Uh, you know what? I really like beauty. The Baal of beauty. I'm going to worship the Baal of beauty. You know, I really like money. I'm going to do the Baal of money. I really, and the reason why the storm god was so important because rain was connected to money. So Baal was connected to provision is how they did it. So there was Baals everywhere. You look throughout the Old Testament, it wasn't one type of Baal, there's Baals everywhere. Our culture has a lot of Baals right now. The Baal of success, the, the, the Baal of beauty. Now we don't have temples like they did back in the day. We just have images that celebrate it like crazy. Don't tell me we don't have the Baal of beauty and the Baal of sex everywhere. It's everywhere rampant. It's called pornography. There, there, there are shrines differently, but they're on the internet. So Baal's everywhere, not the same way they had it, and not as real as they had it, but we have Baal everywhere. And so uh, they go on to say, uh, they're, they're calling out, cutting themselves, performing, it's not working. And here's what happens. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said, all the people come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, uh, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said, And fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he said. He ordered them, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At, that, uh, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, uh, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and you have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you are Lord and God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Everybody say again. again. That's going to be important. Here we go. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, uh, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. No more nothing, no more silence. They see God become who he is. Fire comes down, all of it's done. He wins the contest and they bow down and say, this is God. This is God. They, they are now deciding who they're gonna worship. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. I'll preach on that some other time. And Elijah uh, said to Ahab, go eat and drink for there is the sound of heavy rain. Ooh, the sound of revival, I put it that way. So there's five things, five things you're gonna have to pay for the cost of revival and Elijah shows it to us. If you cut me at my core, if you opened up my chest and looked at my heart and my desire for this, this region and for this church, I'm a revivalist at heart. On my deathbed one day, I'm praying it's a long time from now when I'm laying on my deathbed. I pray that I could look back on my life and say, God, I got to experience your revival in the Bay Area. It's what I pray more than anything else over my life. Every Tuesday, we pray for it at Team Prayer. Every Wednesday at our first night, we pray for it. Every Wednesday, when I wake up in the morning, I literally say, do it again, Lord. You split Red Seas for Moses. Oh, you conquered great armies with a few. God, you could revive the Bay Area. Would you do it again in the Bay Area? So I'm a revivalist at heart. So there's five things that if you want to have a revival in your own life, we want to have a revival in this church, 
If you want to have a revival in your marriage, you want to have a revival with your kids, these are the things you have to pay. Because here's the reality. Don't pray for what you're not willing to pay for. All right? Don't start praying for things you're not willing to actually pay for. Oh, God, revive my marriage. All right. And then you got to start doing stuff in marriage. Oh, no, I just want you to revive it. I don't want to do anything. God, revive the Bay Area. You're going to start serving the area. Oh, no, I don't want to serve the area. I just want you to revive it. Now, if you're going to pray for it, you better get ready to pay for it, okay? So the five things that are the cost revival we see just in this text, first one is re uh, repairing. Repairing is the first thing you're going to have to do. You're going to have to repair. You're going to have to get your hands to repair the altar. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had, been uh, which had been torn down, which had been torn down. It's interesting. COVID tore down a lot of altars. COVID tore down a lot of people's lives, a lot of people's schedules. Um, well, that spilled. <laughs> I was trying to be really non- like, ooh. I was set up. This was, this was set up. Don't worry, everything's waterproof, I guess. Um, like exploded on me. What the frick? Okay. Um, am I not allowed to say frick? Is frick bad? People are like, ooh, he said frick. Um, what the shucks? I don't know. All right, here we go. Um, all right, so Elijah said, uh, repair what had been torn down. Repair what has been torn down. For the rest of your life, what you are building, the enemy will try to tear down. The Bible throughout, there's a rhythm. We are supposed to build each other up because the world wants to tear us down. And so there's this verse in Romans 12 I want to read to you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There is an altar in your life. And what you put on that altar will affect the blessing and the revival of your life. And Paul is saying, your life should be on the altar. And your schedule should be on the altar. And may it be pleasing to God. May it be a living sacrifice. An altar was simply just a... a, a, a what, what, what Elijah built, it could be just a piece of wood, it could be a, some stone, is where a sacrifice was brought to please God to, to, to fix what was broken. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate altar is a cross in Jesus. It fixed what was completely broken, our relationship with the Lord. No more hostility between us and God. Now we're saved. That's the ultimate altar. But now there's this life to live, and there's this daily altar we're supposed to live on. And so if I could just communicate this in the most simple form, your schedule is your altar. And your schedule gets torn to pieces all the time. And the first thing that you need to repair if you want to actually have a revival in your life is you need to repair your schedule. Yeah. You need to repair your altar. And here's what I mean by that. I've heard way too many times in my life from people when I talk to church, hey, I, I want what God has for me. All right, you got to get a small group. I don't have time. Okay, okay. Oh, I, I really want what God has for me. You got to start serving at church. The Bible says that those who serve are refreshed. Okay, those who serve are revived in their soul. Okay, so, so that's another one. Well, I don't have time to serve. Okay, I really want God what God has for me. Hey, start faithfully coming to church. I don't have time to really go to church. Okay, okay. So I, 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 I talked to some mathematicians real quick, and I, I did some math for you, okay? Because if you want to repair what has been broken in your life and you want to revive your soul, because if you want to revive the church, it's got to start with you, it's got to start with me. I'm not trying to revive just a crowd, I'm trying to revive hearts. And so the first one is this, is you need to revive yourself. So people don't say they don't have time for, to pray with the Lord during the day, they don't have time to read their Bible, they don't have time to go on a prayer walk. Here is one little outline for you to lay down on the altar this week and just try it, ready? So these are things that I do, and I feel like it's changed my life. First one is this. Wake up 10 minutes earlier just to pray. 10 minutes early. It'd be a sacrifice. It'd be early. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in my schedule, I'm going to wake up, and before I do anything else, I'm going to pray. 
I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer of my life. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Oh, I'm going to lift up God's name today. May your kingdom come my life, Lord. May your will be done, Lord. I'm going to pray that over my life. Oh, Lord, I, I, give me today my daily bread. Oh, give me what I need today, God. And Lord, I forgive people as you've forgiven me, Lord. I forgive. Oh, deliver me not to temptation, Lord, and protect me from the evil one. If you just pray the Lord's Prayer of your life before you start the day, what would your day look like? Paying, just paying the cost of prayer to start the day. There's a cost to wake up a little earlier, just to pray over your life, pray over your family's life. So just 10 minutes to wake up and pray. And then after that, when you get home from work, 10 minutes to go on a walk to digest the day with the Lord. So sometimes I have to do this. I don't do this all the time, but I, I go on runs and walks a lot around my neighborhood. And when I leave the house, I puke with the Lord. Just blah, 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 you know? Uh, Lord, I was opening a water bottle up today and it made me look like a fool. You know, it spilled everywhere. People laughed at me. And I thought they loved me. They mocked me. I'm just kidding. Um, and so I digest the day with the Lord, and so I puke, and I'm just digesting with him, because you got to digest with the Lord. But then on the way back, when I walk back the house, I praise God. I praise God for what he's doing in my life. And it's just digesting the day. I, it, it changes my soul, revives my soul again, because every day I go out into the world, it wants to tear me to shreds. So it's 10 minutes. So so far, it's just 20 minutes every day. And then 15 minutes before you go to bed, read the Bible, and then pray, and go to sleep. That's 35 minutes of your day. A human being has what we call 24 hours in a day. I've done some great studies, okay? The average human sleeps eight hours a day. That leaves 16 hours for you to Instagram. Don't, don't, don't make me tell you what I found about how long you've been on Instagram every day. Millennials are like three to six hours a day. Something crazy. Talk about another bail in our world. I won't go there. So... When I talk to people, they don't have time in the day for God. You have 35 minutes in your 16 hours of being awake. You have 35 minutes. But the reality is you don't want to repair your broken schedule. You don't want to look at it and say, where is it broken? What has broken my schedule? Instagram has broke my schedule. Netflix has broke my schedule. My idolatry of a career has broke my schedule. My idolatry of child, uh, my, my, my kids has broke my schedule. My idolatry of my marriage has broke my schedule. You gotta, you gotta look at what's broke your schedule and say, I'm gonna repair my schedule. God, you get my first in the day, you get the middle of my day, and you get the end of my day. Yeah. 35 minutes. Do you want your soul revived or not? So let's, can I double down on this though? Okay, I'm gonna double down on it. Now, here's the other part of it. So you're personally reviving yourself. If you only live inward, you're never actually going to revive completely. The Bible shows that we're supposed to gather together, don't neglect that. It talks about we're supposed to serve each other and be in community. You will not have the fullness of God without the community of God. So we do things called small groups at our church. We do community things, we coffees, you name it. We have affinity groups, activity groups. So I did, I did some more math for you. Are you ready? So you have 112 hours of being awake in the week if you sleep eight hours a day. If it's 10, give or take a few hours. But most people are eight-hour uh, uh, eight sleepers. So you have 112 hours a week to work, live, eat, drive places. 112 hours. Here's how many hours it would take you to start reviving your soul when it comes to corporately and what you're supposed to do with the Bible commands. Ready? You go to a small group. So you drive there, you sit down, you talk, hour small group, you leave. I'm going to give you an hour and a half. Do you want me to give you two hours? Do you want me to overestimate for you? Two hours. Two hours for a small group. Two hours. You go to church. Pastor preaches with kind of long at this church, okay? <laughs> That's the shortest messages. <laughs> so you're going to go to church for an hour and a half, not an hour and 15. Poor you, okay? Um, uh, so you're going to go to church for 90 minutes, okay? Um, so that's three and a half hours, okay? And then maybe you serve at church, you know? So there's another half. So that's three and a half, that's five hours. Five hours out of 112 hours. So you have 107 hours still of your own time 
and five hours to give to God in the week. I don't have time for that, Tyler. At 112 hours, I just, I can't. I'm, hey, good to see you. Got to go to work. Got to go. Bye. Got to see my kids. Got to go to sleep. Got to eat. Got to go. I mean, who lives life like that? The enemy would love for you to live life like that. And the reality is, out of your 112 hours that is allotted to you when you're awake, just maybe, just maybe this next season, you'll draw a line in the sand and say, God, I'm going to repair what is broken. You're going to get five hours, and maybe it grows into me going to a first night, and now you get seven hours. Whoa! We also do first night. So once a month, you might even do seven hours instead of five. Wow, you're on fire for Jesus. It, it's amazing to me that we stand behind our busyness and why we don't repair what God has called us to fix. First cost of revival is you need to repair what is broken. And man, it is broken in the U.S. right now. Come on. Second thing is you need to repeat. There must be repairing. There must be repeating. Here's what I mean by, by that. Then he said to them, fill, our large jar, uh, fill four large jars with water and pour it out on the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered it, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. In revival, there will be receiving. There will be um, uh, responding, but there also must be repeating. There must be this thing. Simply saying this, hey, do it again, do it again, do it again. Can I just encourage you real quick? You're going to have to pray more than one time. You're going to have to attend church more than one time to really see the benefit of it. You're going to have to really serve and get in a small group more than one time to see the benefit. You're going to have to repeat praying, repeat giving, repeat serving, repeat gathering. You start repeating those things, watch what happens to your life. Three, resourcing. Come on now. Uh, so I think it's interesting. He tells them to put water in it because they're going to start a fire. Now, I'm not a big camper. I'm a glamper. Where are my glampers at, right? AK, I'm not even a glamper. I'm a hoteller, okay? And not just any hotel. I go in orbits, four star up. Get those three stars out of here, okay? You know? So they, they, come on now, amen. So, so I'm not a camper. But when I did a couple times in my life, when we were starting a fire, the last thing we wanted was our wood to be wet. It was like, hey, we're going to start a fire. Put, put, some, put a bottle of water on there. Have Tyler open his water by the fire. He'll wet it over it, you know? <laughs> oh, sorry, guys. Um, you open the bottle, get away from the fire, Tyler. Um, so what you have here is you have the weirdest thing ever because the wetter the better is what God wants. I want the, the, the wetter the better. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I used to think, why? I mean, they don't need to see what would catch on fire. There's going to be a comet, basically, from the space come down and set something on fire, that's a big miracle enough. Like, I don't think we need also wet wood. Oh, wow, wet wood caught on fire. I believe he's God. No, I mean, a bowl, everything was vaporized by the fire of God. Why? I believe I know. I'm going to read you the Bible. Come on now. But he arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on. Uh, and he said, fill the four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. It's the first time Israel in a long time had worked together to do something for God. Elijah's standing there and goes, I need the people to get involved in what's about to happen. And not only do I need them to get involved, I need them to use the most valuable resource at this time. There's been a famine for three years. I don't know if you forgot about that. And there's not a lot of water. Geographically, they're 20 minutes away from the sea. Some theologians think maybe they walked 20 minutes to the sea and came back with some uh, water from the sea. A lot of theologians believe that they just because there was literally thousands of people there that they got their water and got it together and their most valuable resource, they gave it to this sacrifice. And they're working, hey, how much you got? I, I got a cup of water. What do you got? I, got? I got a jug of water. Well, we put it all together. We can actually put all three of them in there. Let's do it again and do it again. And the church really starts to get powerful. Your life still really gets powerful is when you start resourcing the things of God. When you start saying, I want to give what I, I got a cup. I can give a cup today. 
I got a little bit of encouragement. I can give encouragement today. And when the church starts resourcing each other and starts working together, praying together, giving together, serving together, whoo, you start to see God get pleased with that sacrifice. Resourcing must happen in the cost of revival. I love this verse in Philippians 2.17. Yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. A.K., you are the water. If I could pour my life out, I'm glad to do it. If I can pour anything I got out on this sacrifice, on this church, on these people, ooh, I'm living the life God called me to live. If you're not pouring, you're not living. If you're not pouring your life out, you're not getting revived. There's something to be said about that. I'm almost done. Two more. Uh, requesting, requesting. At that time, the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you are Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Something about, again, Elijah knows who this God is he's praying to. He's like, God, I know you did the Red Sea. I know about Gideon. God, I know about all the miracles. I know about the, I know, I know you're the God of Abraham. I, I know you're the God that promised to one man, and now we're millions. I've seen you do it, and I know you can do it again. There's something about a Christian that knows the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament and says, God, if you did that in the New Testament, you can do it again. How many times have you prayed to prayer, Lord? Will you do that again? Now, let me, let me, let me uh, um, share one of my favorite stories ever. Billy Graham, who, if you don't know Billy Graham, he's the greatest evangelist in American history. God used him to lead millions to the Lord. He was on a school field trip, and they went to John Wesley's house. And John Wesley, uh, God used him in the 1700s for uh, one of the greatest revivals we know in church history, the Methodist movement. And um, he also came to Georgia, and there was a revival there also, uh, him and his brother. And so, so you have John Wesley, and they go to John Wesley's house. And they're showing everybody the house, and they're showing John Wesley's bedroom. And in John Wesley's bedroom, there are two holes in the carpet. And the, the teacher that's showing Billy Graham and the students the, the holes in the carpet said, this is where John Wesley would pray every morning, have his knees in the carpet, and would cry out for revival to God. And so he prayed so much that he wore holes in the carpet. And they walk out of the room, and they're leaving, and they're getting on the bus to leave, and they can't find Billy Graham. So where's, where, where'd Billy go? So the teacher's walking around the classroom. He walks up to the, John Wesley's room, and he sees Billy Graham having his knees put in the same holes that John Wesley did, and he's crying out to God, will you do it again? Will you revive America like you did England? Will, can, you have, can you show me revival? Would you do it again? Well, what you did for John Wesley, would you do it again? This is his exact prayer uh, that they write down in his uh, biography. Do it again, Lord. Lord, would you do it again, and would you do it again in me? There's something to be saying, hey, God, would you do it again in the Bay Area? But the, you, if it's only just the Bay Area, you got to say, God, would you do it again in me? God, God, do you remember when I used to love you when I first got saved 10 years ago? Can I have that fire again 10 years later? Can it be even more vibrant? Lord, the, the church is turning four years old. It's going to be five. Can we have the vibrancy of our first interest service? We were so expectant saying, God, who's coming today? Who's going to get saved today? Who's going to worship you for the first time today? Who's going to be restored today? Would you do it again in me? If you're not requesting, would you do it again? Woo, come on now. Can I pray that prayer over us real quick? God, would you do it again in Mission Church? Would you do it again in families? There's people in the house right now. Your family's on critical condition. You're on critical life support. God, would you revive a family again? Would you do it again? God, I pray for the person in the house right now, the person that is in critical life support, in depression and anxiety. God, you restored broken people before. Would you do it again? God, I pray for the, uh, the, the family that is just distraught and saying, I don't know what to do with my family. I don't know what to do with my kids. God, you restored broken families before. Would you do it again? God, in the Bay Area. Whoa, we've never seen revival in this area, but you revived other areas. Will you do it in the Bay Area? Would you do it again? And everybody said? Come on, let's request together. Well, I'm going to have the worship team to come up. I'm going to finish. 
stay in my 40-minute pocket. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> last one after the four is uh, responding. In re- the cost of revival, there has to be this symptom of revival of where the people that got to experience what God is doing, they just don't sit there and go, I liked it. They fall prostrate, a.k.a. all it means when you fall prostrate and they said, Lord is God, is their life now is pointing to God. There must be responding that now that you've been revived, your life does not point toward any bales anymore in your life, but it points towards God and the things of God and the people of God and the will of God and the mission of God. There has to be that kind of response in your life. They simply said this, when the, the, the fire fell down and the sacrifice of wood, the stones in the soil also looked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. May your life point to God. This week, may your words point to God. May there be a language in your revival. May there be a response in your revival. May, may your responses point to God. May, may the way that you talk about your spouse point to God. May the way you talk about employees uh, point to God. May that be a response in how you live your life. So why the contest? I gotta just touch on this real quick. Uh, I already told you that you know, Lord didn't want anybody else to get the credit for the revival. He wanted to make sure they, when the rain came that everybody knew it was God doing it, not some bail. It's interesting when you look at the way the contest was laid out. It was wherever the fire fell, that's who the real God is. Wherever the fire falls, that's the God uh, that's actually real, and we're going to worship that God. That's the God who wins. The other one, whatever. Fast forward to the New Testament, and you have the disciples walking around with Jesus and the people in one town do not respond well. And so the disciples, not knowing God's heart yet, really, they know God, but they don't really know his heart, how much he really loves broken people. And so they say to Jesus, hey, they don't like us. What if we pulled an Elijah and called fire down on him and killed him? What do you think, Jesus? And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, no. So glad I'm not leaving today. I got another year with you guys. You're gonna figure it out eventually. It's in Luke 9. He's like, uh, yeah, guys, uh, we're not gonna do that. Yeah, you don't know what spirit you speak of? That's not what we're gonna do. Let's keep going, okay? Later on, they hear Jesus say, the fire is gonna come down, but fire is gonna come down on me. He's talking about his death. And you gotta understand something. The disciples knew the story of Elijah. They knew the story of 1 Kings 18 in Mount Carmel. But a lot of people today don't know that story and don't understand the cross. But the reality is, is Jesus said, when, when the fire of wrath, the fire of sin that is supposed to destroy mankind, it's not gonna touch anybody else, it's just gonna fall on me. And when it falls on me, I'm gonna experience the weight of sin, the weight of wrath. You're not gonna experience it. I'm gonna pay the price and I'm gonna die. I'm gonna raise three days later. And the reality is, is when people say, oh, all religions are the same. You know, love God, love people. They're all meaning to do good things. The reality is they're not the same. There's only one God where the fire fell down on. There's only one God that says, I don't want fire to fall on this person. I don't want the weight of performance to fall on this person. I don't want the weight of shame to fall on this person. I want all the fire to fall on me. So let's have one really big contest. Let's see what God dies and what God comes back to life. There's only one. The contest is over. Pick a team today. Do you want to worship the God who conquered the grave, who took the fire for you and says, now because I took the fire for you, you can now have the living water of life. Or choose the other gods. Choose the other cults. Choose the world's ideologies. But for me, I'm going to choose the one that won the contest of all contests. 
And it, when people ask you, man, how did you get this life? I'm praying that whichever way you want to say it to your friends, that you would say, man, there was a cost to this and Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. There's something to be said about believers who point to Jesus that paid the ultimate cost. Man, there's a cost to revival. Jesus paid the ultimate cost. But this week, can you repair your life a little bit? Repair your schedule? Can you repeat some things? Request some things? Can you respond to some things? And can you resource some things this week? Does that sound good, church? Will you bow your heads with me? I don't know if it's your first time, second time, third time in church. We've never been to church before. And you want to say yes to Jesus. You want to say yes to heaven, no to hell. Yes to blessing, no to curse. You want to say yes to salvation. Man, there is a cost to revival. And Jesus paid the ultimate cost. And that's why you get to raise your hand. That's all you get to do. All you have to do is respond. That's what you got to pay on your end. God paid everything else, which is everything. So if you want to respond to this, the Bible says, confess your mouth, believe your heart, you'll be saved. If that's you in the house today, with your head bowed and eye closed, you want to say yes to Jesus. On the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Raise it up and raise it up. I want to see if you want to say yes to Jesus. Say, I see you, I see you, and I see you. Hands all over. I see you. Hands raised everywhere. I see you also in the back. See, I, I see you. I see you on the left-hand side. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Will you guys stand up? We're going to start doing something as a church. I think it's important. We're going to pray uh, the salvation prayer together as a church. People just got saved. We want to pray with them. That's the first thing we're going to do together. We're going to pray together. We're going to serve together. We're going to get revived together. Can you repeat after me? Jesus, come into my life. I confess today. I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. So today, I declare, you are my Lord. I say goodbye to my past. I say yes to my promises. I say goodbye to hell. And I say hello to heaven. And everybody said? Mission Church, I love you. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.